Hey there, so we're making some changes to the show, and we really hope that you like them as we continue to dial into what you might find most beneficial for your games and, of course, for your listening experience. With that being said, here are the raw goods. We are going to be moving to a weekly release schedule, and what is considered a segment, or what you're used to being a segment for a podcast, is now going to be essentially an episode. So shorter, punchier, easier to enjoy on your commute, or easy to binge. We also did a wicked brainstorm over the last couple of weeks, and we have a pretty cool overall direction that we're really excited about, and we're stoked to get into and dig into over the next couple of months, and we hope that you are too. So one of those things that came from that brainstorm is this brand new intro. So here we go. If you're vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Welcome to the Hook and Chance Podcast. Your next game is going to be hellish. And here's why. In this series of episodes, we are going to dive into Tiefling Society. In episode one, what does it look like when Tieflings band together? In episode two, what does it feel like when Tieflings are cast out? And in episode three, how do Tieflings incorporate their unique physiology into their lives? I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. So we love us some tieflings. They're outcasts, they're underdogs, they're the others, and they're the badass others. Absolutely, there's very few races in Dungeons and Dragons that get horns and tails and cool skin and the ability to freak people out with magic. (laughs) If you couldn't tell, Jordan really loves tieflings. (laughs) They can be anything you want them to be. To be fair, he came home today and he was pretty amped up. Yeah. So <laughs> we're going to get uh, a pretty exciting version <laughs> of tour today. We'll see how long it lasts. <laughs> uh, if you have tieflings in your world that are widely accepted and they have major communities that flourish in cool ways, I mean, that's awesome. Like, obviously, accepted tieflings are cool. The possibilities are pretty wild. But in D&D's Forgotten Realms lore, they're pretty well established to be generally hated <laughs> like, yeah there's not, not a, a lot ton of them yeah they're untrusted people are giving them the side eye <laughs> yeah they're generally it's like you don't you don't leave a tiefling around your child you, <laughs> yeah you don't leave it near anything valuable like they're just their devilish heritage puts them at a disadvantage in most social situations people can get past a half orc but a devil person it's <laughs> a hard sell <laughs> So really what we wanted to do today is talk about uh, some of the other folks from real world history that live on the fringes of society and really how did they cope and and how can we draw more rich and interesting uh, experiences and backstories and ideas from those folks. So we're going to start off by kind of talking about the different ways that we can incorporate this all, and we actually worked this into a little bit of a story.
You are following a secret path that takes you deep into the rarely explored, often lethal expanses of the desert. The journey has tapped your resources and your stubborn nature nearly to their limits, but the chance to end it is finally close. Having recently escaped a potential prison sentence, the directions that you paid for are your only hope. Closed-door meetings and secretive individuals provided the direction your survival rests on them. Legends tell of a place deep in the sands that provides a resource normally only found in the Nine Hells. Few ever return. The heat is said to be unbearable in this part of the world, but you can't turn back now. Over the last few miles, you've seen the occasional glint of what seems to be like metal in the edges of your vision. But it must be a mirage. As you crest the next dune, a building is visible, but with every step up the dune, more is revealed until you behold the entire towering structure, a vertical city amongst the sand. You trudge down the winding path, gravity doing most of the work for you with every step as your fatigue has nearly capsized you. You're so close now, the path dotted with obelisks on either side leading to the gates. A voice booms from the top of the wall. What brings you so far from home to our refuge across this deadly desert? Some shade, perhaps? A cloud of darkness forms about you, shading you completely from the sun. Welcome. Let's get you some water and some rest. All right, and with that, we're going to hop into Archives of the Ancients. This is the Archives of the Ancients, where knowledge is unearthed to add wild insights to our world. So for this Archives of the Ancients, again, we're kind of running on this idea that, of course, tieflings aren't super welcome in many societies. So with that in mind, what kind of groups need to exist in order to facilitate a way of life that one might have to live underground? And we're not talking literal underground? Like in <laughs> no, not, not the Underdark. <laughs> but like, yeah, basically not out in the open. Maybe, maybe tieflings are super not welcome, like extra not welcome. Yeah. So perhaps we're running on the idea that this is like a a city full of really pious clerics that don't, you know, welcome or enjoy the presence of uh, somebody with a devilish lineage. They're just blaming all the bad stuff on them. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. So in doing all of this research about w what that actually looks like, there came about some really interesting ideas and some structures built around clandestine underground governments and societies and structures that are required to basically facilitate that, to, to basically run an underground society. And there's different structures of those depending on the physical size of those societies. So starting with the smallest, which would be like one person underground. So what is required to do so? So we're talking about that uh, tiefling that is getting out from the city, but it's really difficult to do so because everybody's looking for him. They're blaming something on him. They're trying to put him in prison, put him in jail. Sure. So, yeah, if you have this one escapee tiefling, let's say that they were 
accused of doing something which they obviously weren't. Um, you know, they're just the scapegoat for something else. The elderly are disappearing. Jesus. <laughs> the tieflings are taking your your grandma? Well, that's what they're saying. Tieflings took my Nana. <laughs> but Nana really went off to become the leader of her own underground society. <laughs> this narrative is getting really deep and complex. But anyways, yes. The tiefling is trying to escape the false blame. Okay. So you've got this tiefling. And this is actually seen in the real world in a, a great example of, let's say, a convict. Um, convict recently escaped. Now, a lot of convicts who might escape prison, if they don't have some kind of connection above ground, so we're going to consider them underground at this point, they're now escapees, they can't really just walk in any old grocery store to get their their necessities, they now are underground. So you need somebody above ground to facilitate that, to facilitate getting from A to B, um, because you can't just go to budget rental car and be like, I would like one of those Fiats, please. Mm -hmm. Um, So there always has to be somebody on the surface. And so, I mean, consider like a husband and wife team or something like that. Uh, Husband escaped from jail. Now the wife is out there interacting with all of the people on the surface uh, within society that you would need things from. So the tiefling's wife is helping get him a horse named Fiat <laughs> from <laughs> Pungent Rent-A-Wagon. <laughs> oh man, this narrative's getting better all the time. <laughs> Budget Rent-A-Wagon is now my my go-to fantasy rental company. It's, uh, it's your cheap wagon. <laughs> the wheels might not be totally on their axles but you'll get there <laughs> you can rent different uh you know uh, a compact uh <laughs> which is a tiny pony maybe a, a mule <laughs> all the way up to your your plus sized clydesdales yeah the yeah. war horses of dnd <laughs> <laughs> okay so we've got this kind of squared away so yeah at the most simple you've got a single leader who would be the convict and then you would need somebody on the surface that's able to facilitate all of this now it gets a little bit more complex when you get up to mid-sized underground networks and an example might be a political group that is you know on the surface they're doing normal political protests so like non-violent protests but then you have this group that's also doing illegal things So this now requires more than just what one person is able to do. So the tiefling's wife, Susanna, Susanna is yes. uh, is now starting to organize some protests and getting some people on board with that. Exactly. Against the treatment of tieflings in the city. And she sees that there is an obvious need to help get other tieflings that are being blamed for things that really they shouldn't. And clearly this city is becoming a more hostile place for them. Yeah. So now they've started this group to try and help get people out. So you have the tieflings that can't be seen on the streets Mm -hmm. and they're the underground society. They're the underground network. And so you would have this, uh, there might be a leader. There might not be there might be a few leaders, but all of them are able to a openly contact one another. So 
they're kind of like together. No real structures have been formed around how certain contact is made between everyone underground. This has a disadvantage because if you were to capture one of those people, they now put everyone else within that group at risk. Mm. And so you can't really grow above like five to six people in an underground, you would just call this uh, not necessarily a network. Because you, you were saying that once you get above five or six, that's where uh, the trust starts to break down. Like you can't trust a group of more than that. Not that you can't necessarily trust, but that it's just really hard to keep secrets. Yeah. Because you've got five or you know six people out there all kind of doing their different things. But if they're coming and going from any place, like the risk just, the likelihood that that will succeed becomes exceedingly low. Yeah. So then on the surface level, you have five or six other individuals that are acting as the, those surface contacts. And they're all kind of co-mingling as well. They're all able to talk to each other openly. But each one of them, this is where it gets a little bit more complex. They start to have specialties. So now each person involved in the above ground dealings has some kind of specialty and they're including other people. They're connecting with other people that can't necessarily know about the underground network, but that might be allies. Hmm. So they're booking more budget rent-a-wagons. So Susanna's buddy, Gary, is opening his own budget rent-a-wagon chain. <laughs> so that's, that's his specialty. Sure, and so another person up. has a specialty in procuring passes, you know, city passes or something like that, gate passes. All the paperwork that you need yeah. to leave and come into different cities. Another person is really good at finding funding and money from other places because more money is required. Another, so now, another person's baking keys into cakes. <laughs> it's just a baker <laughs> in that that surface network. Um so exactly, like it just, everyone has their specialty, but again, they're all kind of commingling. So if any one of them is compromised, now you have problems. So with that all being said, um, a really kind of cool example in history was German siblings, Hans and Sophie Scholl. Uh, if you haven't heard of them, they actually led a, a youth resistance or a college age youth resistance in Nazi Germany. And there were two siblings that founded the White Rose, and they were an anti-Nazi propaganda group that resisted the Hitler youth movement that was super popular at the time, like most children were involved in some way, shape, or form. So in this really, really uh, dangerous time to be a dissident, they were airdropping leaflets with pleas to resist Nazi values all over Berlin and Germany as a whole. So... They got away with this for a long, long time, but they required their surface-level people like printers. They couldn't even be seen on the streets. Hmm. Once it was identified that they were doing you know, this, yeah. anybody associated with the right rose would have been apprehended. And there was only six of them, but they stayed uncaught for a long time. And the only thing that kept those surface co-conspirators and the underground coast conspirators safe. You know, if you think about all of the other functions that were really required, uh, if you're airdropping, you need planes, you need printing, 
You need all kinds of stuff. You need to source all of this without necessarily compromising the underground network. Hmm. So that's where that surface network becomes so important. You need cakes. You need cakes. You need cakes with keys. <laughs> no matter what what the application, everyone needs key cakes. He's in, that cake maker is in high demand. And the only reason that this worked in the long run was that Hans and Sophie Scholl chose death over giving up some of their co-conspirators. They were mm. actually condemned and killed by guillotine. Jeez. So this gets a little bit wilder when you amp up the size of the organization. To round this all off, bigger organizations, you you make them really big. Now we're talking about the size of, and the size of the complexity of, say, the CIA. The CIA is a, is a perfect example of the largest level of underground and above ground networks. So if we're turning Susanna's efforts into a bigger organization, then we're saying that maybe she gets a, a bunch of tieflings from the city. They all start to gather in some place, maybe in the desert, start to set up a community. And over a couple of decades, that turns into its own hidden city of tieflings that are now running all kinds of operations and continuing to serve their original cause. Totally. So uh, once you get up to that size, you can't go unseen anymore. So now, uh, usually these organizations will take on more of a public face. They'll seem a lot more legitimate. Not to say that anything that uses an underground network isn't illegitimate, uh, or is illegitimate. <laughs> You're really twisting your words there. What Damn are you it. trying to say? Uh are you legitimate or not? <laughs> so at its most basic foundation, and this is why the CIA is a great example of this, is that you have a public face that operates with a hierarchy that looks very similar to any business. And so at this size, you kind of need that to make this scalable and sustainable. Yeah. And then underground is where it gets really, really interesting. And again, going back to the CIA example, in the CIA, you have the top few people in the above ground network who are able to communicate to the underground. That limits the risk in communicating with that underground network. Now, on the underground network side, you might have one, two, or three leaders. And each one of those leaders will communicate to cells so underground network needs cells why because of that rule of above five or six starts to get risky uh yeah above five or six and now all of a sudden it's hard to keep secrets so each one of these cells will operate and it has a specialty whether it's recruiting or intelligence or uh, propaganda or whatever the case may be whatever the the underground network is actually necessary to do each one will operate in separate cells. Those cells won't communicate with one another because it's too risky. They'll only communicate one leader from each one of those cells will communicate to a leader that is organizing the entire underground. And then one of those leaders are the only one that communicates to the above ground network mm. or the legitimate side. So in the case of tieflings, now all of a sudden you've got tieflings that are our escape experts that yeah. are helping inside the inside the city to get people out they've got contacts they've got corrupt guards 
and city officials on payroll. Exactly. You've got, on the surface level, you would have to set up some kind of business. Maybe it is budget. (laughs) Rent a card. (laughs) Yep. Because now we have a reason to be moving in and out and going here, there, and everywhere. But underneath, in a false bottom of every single budget rent-a-cart that's heading to the direction of our escapee's city. Yeah. So we've got this really cool system above ground that looks totally legitimate. Yeah, Leonard's Cakes. (laughs) (laughs) A key in every cake. (laughs) Who's making these keys? Who knows? What What are the keys to? Yeah, they don't unlock any specific door. They're just keys. You'll know someday what they unlock. It's just a nice surprise when you bite into a soft cake. <laughs> you get to chip a tooth. Yep. So, yeah, now you've, you're have you gathering all of these tieflings and you're sending them out of town and you've got this really cool underground network uh, that, that can operate. So they're making money for all of their efforts on the surface. Yes. Through, through budget? Sure. Rent-a-cart? Yeah. So, anyway, that's how that's how underground organizations are structured. That's pretty cool. So beyond that, though, if you can't establish some kind of structure, if maybe things aren't that stable, politically or otherwise, maybe you say it's not worth the time. Your tiefling uh, doesn't have the time to figure all this stuff out, to live and work within the city or nearby the city. They just want to peace out. So now this is where you get into another direction that people have gone historically in order to escape being unwanted or being persecuted in a certain area, uh, you've got a nomadic lifestyle. So Chorgwump gets out of the city. Chorgwump the tiefling. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and he says, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to work for this huge organization and be part of their system. That's just like the system that I got out of. Sure. I want the open road. <laughs> so you've got in a in a nomadic setting, a really good example would be, you know, if these tieflings banded together and they said, you know what? No, we want to kick the shit out of the people that are persecuting us. Mm. So this is where you get into Attila the Hun as a really cool example of a nomadic people. So they formed a militaristic society all under Attila, and he was the leader, and this had a very org chart-looking system as well. Um, But they traveled around, and that was how they kept uh, organization and structure to their lives, is they had essentially a people military, like everyone, every Hun was a part of this. Hmm. Chorgwump, the destroyer, will seek vengeance (laughs) on those that wronged him. So... What's really interesting about the Huns is that they were so powerful, they were attributed as being the major catalyst in the fall of the Roman Empire. And if you remember back to our barbarian episode, it was, this is where the the term barbarian came from, the barbar. Just a label for those they wanted to paint in a uncivilized light. Yeah. So the Roman Empire is expanding and they're pushing into Asia And they were just like, "Mm, no, we're not really having this. So instead, uh, we're going to kick the living crap out of you. So this was actually cool because, as usual, history is written by the powerful. 
Mm-hmm. And so they were painted as incredibly brutal, super savage, barely even people, according to historical records. Yeah. However, uh, Perseus of Parnum was uh, a Roman who actually wrote and depicted the Huns in a much more positive light because Perseus actually went and met them and had dinner with them, had dinner with Attila the Hun, Hmm. and just hung out with them within their settlements for quite some time. And his depiction was very uh, positive Hmm. in terms of the way they lived. So it's kind of believed by historians to be that this was essentially a smear campaign against the Huns. The fact that they were just these, and I'm sure they contributed to a lot of deaths because they were trying to push the Romans back into their own territory. Yeah. So they just sacked village after village after village of, of Romans. And it was all of their attempts to push the Huns back and deal with this huge problem that they were becoming that pretty much tanked the Roman Empire because they were spread so thin. So clearly they were aggressive, but they weren't like the literal monsters that they were made out to be by the Romans. Well, and I think this can... Yeah, exactly. And I think that this can work into games in a really interesting way because you might have, uh, you know, smear campaigns against tieflings. Mm -hmm. How much of it is really true? What do people believe? On which side do they sit that they actually do start to believe this stuff? And then, of course, if tieflings are trying to escape this kind of persecution, maybe they would fight back. So that'd be an interesting take on playing a tiefling character is, you know sharing with your party that tieflings are have all kinds of different things to the way that they live their lives and they're not the all the terrible things that the city says about them exactly yeah another interesting example would be the romani people uh which you know are still it's still a very not great story about how persecuted these folks have been all over europe and uh, parts of Asia, and they're, I mean, they're still dealing with this today. And one of the really interesting takeaways for how they have had to basically respond to this mistreatment is that they've actually built really, really, really tight social structures. Because without all of the benefits that you would get from being an official citizen of a country and being nomadic, so think about all of the resources that we enjoy from healthcare to travel options, education, education, so many things that are afforded by a particular government. But if you don't have one of those governments or they don't represent you and they keep pushing you into different directions, into different countries, well, then you have to respond by having a really tight knit social structure. So they have some really interesting rules. It's certainly worth kind of looking into a little bit deeper. Um, But the takeaway here is that in a society like this, in the one that we're describing, a tiefling that's allowed to join an adventuring party, A, adventuring parties are pretty much the only place that they're going to be super welcome. Yeah. Because of their differences, because of their specialties, (laughs) because they're freaking badasses. Yeah, since there's probably some other unique individuals in the party as well that might get looked at strangely. And essentially, your adventuring party is nomadic. They're a nomadic family. And so just like the Romani people, uh, they invite people that are specialty people that know what they're doing, 
you know, they, they have to learn all of the ins and outs. And so if you need a doctor or you need any of these other roles that we take for granted, somebody within your family group has to be that. Hmm. Well, that's your adventuring party. You've got a cleric. You've got a ranger. You've got a, hmm. a warlock. You've got any everybody who's able to do their special thing. Yeah. And so the takeaway for this is really, uh, if you're playing a tiefling character, you're going to bond super tightly to the rest of your adventuring party. You, you're not necessarily going to be the 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 loner, the outcast within your own family group. Right. And maybe that's part of your character arc is you start there, but you very quickly form those familial bonds that make the Romani people so strong in faith in the face of all of this adversity that they, they hmm. see. You'd be a lot quicker to, yeah, like you said, get over that brooding, quiet persona that you might start with. Yeah. Because they have a really cool, colorful culture. The final response to being othered in terms of a society and things like that is the exclusion of everybody. Hmm. <laughs> when no other option is available to you, you just say, screw all y'all. I'm going where you can't find me. And that's exemplified in a couple of different places that uh, that I was researching. So the first place is the Siwa Oasis, which is a small, uh, a very small town, a very small community. And it's in the middle of the empty Saharan desert. Like the vast middle of the empty Saharan desert is a remote village that can only be reached by overnight bus. (laughs) And it's overnight for obvious reasons because you're not traveling through the sahara and scorching hot because <laughs> a bus in a regular city is already getting pretty toasty my tires don't melt <laughs> so yeah only this uh only in the last couple of years here where they did they figure out how to build a uh solar power plant and they erected this in the town to provide the town electricity because they didn't have it up until very recently there is no cell service uh, and it's so isolated that the inhabitants' tribal culture has remained largely unchanged throughout centuries. Hmm. So your tieflings, they just peace out. They go where no one else can go, which is in the middle of the desert. Or they developed somewhere Yeah, no one else can yeah, go. Yeah, exactly. So that advantage that they have with having heat resistance... And all kinds of things like that, they start to play in. So yeah. where are they naturally going to be able to tolerate that maybe other people couldn't? Yeah. Leave me alone. I'm building the city here. They're happy in the desert. Another kind of cool example is Whittier, Alaska. So Whittier is a town of 200 residents. And the only road leading in or out of this Alaskan town, it passes through a four-kilometer-long single-lane tunnel that shuts down during the evening. So it's really hard to get to. Yeah, totally cut off. And in this town, the most interesting part about it is all of those 200 residents, well, they live in one 14-story high-rise condo building in the middle of town. Jeez. There's nothing else there. There's like there's no other two-story buildings. So you've just got this massive tower 
in the middle of an a, a, a very small Alaskan town. So I guess like the mayor lives in the penthouse suite? Or what? <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? Uh, but the building even has like all, half of the town's necessities, like a post office and a church and a corner store, all inside the same building. So winters all of a sudden aren't so bad in Alaska. It's actually probably pretty good to not have to heat a whole bunch of individual dr- dwellings, yeah. but just one 200 condo building. Wow. Probably pretty efficient. <laughs> So and yeah. defensible and defensible. So imagine <laughs> if all of your tieflings formed this cool singular town out in the middle of nowhere, where yeah. they're just like, "Hey, we can be happy here." Or if they kept going with it, it turned into a uh, Judge Dredd style city. Hell yeah, peach trees. <laughs> <laughs> and then your character is that Judge Dredd. Oh boy, nice. <laughs> Play that so. Campaign. Yeah, basically, the the major takeaways, uh, you've got structures of clandestine and secretive organizations, and maybe you can use them to keep your fantasy secret society. Maybe it doesn't even relate to tieflings. It's just, hey, does your party want to form a secret society? This is how it has to be structured, depending on the size. Or even, I can really see it helping, even if I don't flesh out everything about an underground society, like in a lot of games, there ends up being gangs or groups of villains and it's like when when one thug gets interrogated oh yeah then i can pretty quickly logically figure out like who they know about (laughs) without losing my mind and trying to like figure it all out on the spot well and hopefully that helps kind of map out an organization because again like you said the the party captures one thug and they can just detail out the entire organization. Right. But that's not, that's not really how happen. that works. You know, you've got those cells and maybe they can only give you one other person. So it just adds that ever extra level of complexity and realism to uh, a criminal organization or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, when you can't find acceptance, you peace out. You either go rogue and start living the nomadic lifestyle or you just go where nobody can find you. Just get some tanning done in the middle of a desert. (laughs) So that concludes this episode. Um, Hope you like the new format. I hope this is working for you. Uh, We're going to be back with more. So thanks again to Tabletop Audio for all the sound effects that you heard in this episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and Reddit. And the next episode, we're going to dive into what does it feel like when tieflings are cast out? What are the psychological effects of that so you can better roleplay tieflings? So thanks for listening, and play Play great great games. Games.